0: Open your Bibles tonight to the Old Testament. You might have some gold leaf papers there that, uh, that, that are still stuck together. If it's been a while for you, since, since you've been in the Old Testament, we're in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy tonight. And if you need a Bible, you can lift up your hand and the ushers will bring a Bible to you so you can follow along with us in our study. And uh, you actually could open to Deuteronomy chapter 31. Um, we're, we're, tonight we're going to introduce the book. We probably won't get into the text. In fact, I know we won't get into the text, but we will look at a couple of verses in chapter 31, so you, you'll be ready if you're open to that uh, portion there. Tonight we'll introduce, and next week we'll get into chapter 1, uh, and, and we hopefully will, will not... Um, you know, there's three different ways to study the Bible. There's the, there's the, uh, the eagle-eye view, there's the man's eye view, and then there's the worm's eye view. Uh, you know, eagle-eye, you go faster, man's eye, a little slower, worm's eye, one verse a week, you know. And uh, hopefully, we're somewhere between men and eagles with, with this, <laughs> but, but we'll see how the Lord leads uh, as we go through. But we're there, and so uh, we'll begin. Now, the Bible is the story of God's revelation of himself to man. In its totality, it teaches us, first and foremost, above all other things, who God is. It's the revelation of God to us. Everything that it's possible for man to know about God is revealed to us in the Bible. Now, that doesn't mean that we can know everything that there is to know about God. But everything that we can know in our finite, fallen, you know, redeemed condition is given to us in the Bible. And so above all things, the Bible is the revelation of who God is. But the Bible also teaches us and testifies to us who man is, who we are. We can't learn about ourselves by searching our own hearts or digging into our past or analyzing our dreams or looking into our ancestry or our lineage, our heritage. None of that will tell us who we are, but the Bible will tell us who we are. It doesn't have flattering things to say, but it tells us who we are, and and the Bible reveals what man is and who man is, in our nature and in the fall in the condition that we find ourselves in the bible teaches us those things the bible also teaches us about life everything that there is to know about life and living life in the most abundant way that we can possibly live it is given to us in the bible that's what the bible is about that's what it's for it's the book of life And then finally, the Bible also tells us about salvation. We know that we're fallen. We know that we're separated from God. And the Bible is given to us not just to tell us who God is and who we are and what life is, but the Bible gives to us a clear path of how we can be brought into a right relationship with God that our lives could be redeemed and saved, and that we can spend eternity with God. And so it tells us the way of salvation. So the Bible is about God, who he is, man, who and what we are, life, what it is and how to have it, and salvation, that is, how to attain it, and how to be redeemed and have a relationship with God. That's what the Bible is all about. And then the gel, or the anchor, that makes all of that real and all of that effective is the fact that the Bible is absolutely, uncompromisingly true. That every word of God is pure. And that there's no passage of scripture that is untrue or questionable, but that the full revelation of what God has told us about himself and about us and about life and about salvation, that all of that is true. And until a person comes to that realization that what God has told us is true, that it's absolutely true, then that person cannot benefit from what the Bible gives to us. They can't know God. They'll never understand themselves. They'll always come short of what life is all about. And they won't be saved. They won't come to salvation. They can't have it if they don't Believe it, that the Bible is absolutely true. And so, God tells us who he is. And in order for us to benefit from that, we must come to him and accept and embrace him, not for what we want him to be, or what we might make him to be, but rather who he tells us that he is on the pages of the Bible. So the Bible is the key for you and I. To experience God, to understand ourselves, to live life rightly and abundantly, and to be saved. It comes from Him, and it comes from faith in believing the truth of God's Word. Now, having said that, tonight we start a study in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the heart and the soul of Old Testament doctrine, or Old Testament teaching. We've spent the past three and a half years, and on Wednesday nights, maybe longer than that, going through the heart of New Testament doctrine. We've looked at the Book of Acts and seen the church, what it is and what it does. We've looked at Revelation and seen how all things end. We've studied most of the epistles of Paul and we've delved into the heart of New Testament doctrine, New Testament theology, and now we come to Deuteronomy, the heart and soul of Old Testament doctrine. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, why would we do that? Why would we study the Old Testament? Aren't we New Testament Christians? isn 't that our book isn 't that our place where we 're new covenant Christians? Why would we study the old isn 't that what it is it 's old it 's outdated it 's archaic it 's vintage you know we, that's, it, it 's gone it 's past we're, we, we don 't fellowship with God there. We meet him in the new covenant, we meet him in Christ. Why would we study the old testament here 's the thing: the Bible is not two books in one volume, you know the old covenant the old god the old way and the new covenant the new god and the new way no no it's not two books in one volume it's one narrative it's one revelation of god that's divided into two covenants the new testament did not replace the old testament it's not an upgrade you know how we do that with our phones you know that this one's outdated you know I, I can only talk to text in this phone i can't think to text this is this is like fred flintstone who uses this anymore you know if i can't think to text then who i can't even use this you know and so we upgrade we well isn't that what the new testament is it's an upgrade from the old the old didn't cut it anymore and so no 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 that's that's not what it is it's not an upgrade or a replacement but rather it's the fulfillment and the culmination of what the Old Covenant was. What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17? He said, do not think that I am come to destroy the law and the prophets, which speaks of the Old Testament. I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill. He isn't the destruction or the replacement of it, but rather he's the fulfillment and the the consummation of it or the culmination of it. See, when Jesus taught, what did he teach? He taught the Old Testament scriptures. When he went into the synagogue and he taught the people, he would take the scroll of Isaiah or the scroll of Deuteronomy and he would expound The scriptures, the truth about God, the truth about life, the truth about man, the truth about salvation, to them from the Old Testament scriptures. When Jesus was on the road to Emmaus with his disciples, before they knew they were walking with the resurrected Lord. And they were discouraged because he had died. And they didn't believe in the resurrection and didn't understand what had happened. And Jesus, walking with them, he asked them the question. He said, why is it that you walk along this way and you are sad? And they said, don't you know the things that have happened in Jerusalem in these days? Jesus said, what things? And they said, where have you been? You know, the Savior. He was supposed to be, at least, we thought. And they talked to him, and it says that Jesus began to speak to them, beginning with Moses. That means Genesis, the beginning of the Bible. And he expounded for an eight-mile walk. It takes five, six, seven hours. For five, six, seven hours, he expounded to them from Genesis all the way to Malachi, the entire Old Testament. It says, the things concerning himself and it says that they said those the audience the listeners they said didn't our hearts burn within us when he expounded to us the scriptures he took the old testament and he revealed the new testament to them that had been concealed in the old testament scriptures when the apostles taught when you read the book of Acts and you read the sermons of Peter and the apostles in the early church, what is it that they were teaching, preaching? It was the word that came from the Old Testament scriptures. That was, there was no New Testament in those days. They couldn't open up to Matthew. It hadn't been written yet. And so the apostles' teaching was the new covenant revealed from the Old Testament scriptures. The New Testament writings are inspired by the Old Testament scriptures. And so it isn't a replacement, it's a fulfillment. Somebody said one time like this. They said that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. And the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And so if you understand the New Testament, which you should, which I hope you do, if you understand the New Testament, then going into the Old Testament now unlocks it. It becomes the key of understanding, and it it, it it turns the lights on. And the glory of what it is, and what it foretold, and what it speaks, and what it reveals of who God is, is brought into the light as we study the Old Testament uh, and look at it. You say, okay, so we're studying the Old Testament. That's That's kind of uncharted territory for a lot of us you know we don't spend a whole lot of time there well the old testament is actually quite simple it breaks up into four categories and i won't take long with this but just so you kind of have your map you know you know where you are is the old testament first of all is the torah the first five books genesis exodus leviticus numbers and deuteronomy they were all written by moses And and when you hear a Jew talk about the Torah, that's what they're talking about. It's called also the law. Those five books, they call it the law. Sometimes they call it Moses. They sum up the whole section of those books and just call it Moses. The Greek name, which perhaps you've heard it sometime, is called the Pentateuch or the five. Pente means five. And so it's the five books. It's the five books of Moses. So you have the Torah. That's section one of the Old Testament. Then, the second segment of the Old Testament is the history, and that is from Joshua all the way up through, uh, what is it, Esther, Nehemiah, Ezra, all the way up through Ezra, you have, those are historical books, and what that basically gives to you is a timeline, A, a, a series of historical events Packed with theology and lessons and truth and revelation of God. But, but it's a timeline. It's giving to you the history of Israel. And it, and it goes all the way from when Moses dies, all the way through the period of the judges, through the period of the kings, you know, David and Solomon and their descendants, and then into the captivity when they go to Babylon for 70 years, and then when they come back, you know, and, and it goes all the way to about 450 B.C., about 450 years before Jesus comes. And then the, the history ends. And, and we don't really know, from a biblical perspective, what happened. Those last 450 years are, are, are unspoken of. But that's the history. It's the history books. Then, section number three of the Old Testament is the poetry. And that is Job, Psalms, Psalms. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs, or the Song of Solomon. Those are the poetical books. They're not historical. They're not uh, strictly theological. They, They don't have a segment. They're not prophetic in and of themselves, but yet they contain all of those things, and some have called them the workbook on worship because there's so much in there to be learned of God, of his character, of his person, of his ways, and so those poetry books are there. Great devotional reading. And then the fourth section is the prophets, beginning with Isaiah and going all the way through Malachi. You have all of the prophets. And, and, and the prophets all plug into various points in the history. And so you know, that's kind of a, an exercise that you can do as you read the prophet is to figure out where that prophet was in the timeline, in the history, and and then you can read the history along with the prophecy and kind of understand what was going on in the nation. And so that's the Old Testament. It, It just breaks down just like that. The Torah, the history, the poetry, and then the prophets. You say, okay, I get it, I'm with you. Why are we studying Deuteronomy? Why Deuteronomy? I mean, it it almost seems like you played Bible roulette. You just kind of, and it opened up to Deuteronomy. Okay, we'll do Deuteronomy. Or, Or you threw a dart at a Bible map or something. Why are we studying Deuteronomy? What's the strategy? What's the reason why we would insert our feet at this point in the path of god's revelation a a couple of reasons uh, for you to consider as we um, think about this and begin and the first is this is that it is one of the most profitable and one of the most important books in the old testament the book of deuteronomy of course you know that it was written by moses he wrote the first five this was the last of the books that he wrote And it was written one month before he went to heaven. The whole narrative of this text covers a span of one month. And what it is, it is a series of three sermons that Moses gave just before going to heaven. And and they are really the last words of Moses. Actually, the name of the book in Hebrew is the words. I don't know how to say the Hebrew word, but it, it is the words of Moses. The word Deuteronomy means the second law. Deuteros means second and nomos means law. And so it's the second giving of the law. And, and all it is, it's a reiteration. Is Moses in the last days of his life recounts to the people their history, how God had led them and established them, how he had blessed them and given them his law, his commands, his words, and then pointing them Uh, forward to their destiny and and so that thing and and so the three sermons that sum up his experience among them and his ministry to them that must have been fascinating i mean can you imagine here's this man moses and he's walked with the lord for 80 years had a, a walk with god that probably no other man has ever had You know, speaking to God like a man speaks to his friend, the Bible says, in just such an intimacy. And now in the last month of his life, he gathers all the people and and imagine all of what's bound up in his heart, all that he's experienced, all that he's seen, all that has gone on, all that he's learned, and now he just gives it to them. And so it's priceless words that Moses uh, gives. Another difference between Deuteronomy, the second reiteration of the law, and, and what we get from Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus is that Deuteronomy was written or, you know, narrated for the people specifically. Much of the law that we read in Leviticus and the stuff in Exodus that was written for the priests and the kings, those that would be carrying out the duties of the priesthood, enforcing the government of the kingdom. It was written for them. But Deuteronomy was written for the people. It was for them to be able to go and look and see who God is and understand what he has and what he wants for them. That's what it was. And so it was for the people so that they might come to an understanding of who God is. So important to God was and is the book of Deuteronomy, that he actually commanded the people that once every seven years at the Feast of Tabernacles, the whole nation be gathered together and it is to be read publicly. Every seven years, the book of Deuteronomy, and and, and you should be there in Deuteronomy chapter 31, if you just look with me at verse 9. Notice what it says there. It says that Moses wrote this law, and he delivered it unto the priests, the sons of Levi, which bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and unto all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, saying, at the end of every seven years, in the solemnity of the year of release, every seven years, the slaves would go free, debts would be erased, things would be reset. That's what he's talking about. In the solemnity of the year of release... In the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the yearly feasts they would have, when all Israel is come to appear before the Lord thy God in the place which he shall choose, you shall read this law, the Deuteronomy, the second giving, this law before all Israel in their hearing. Gather the people together, men and women and children, And thy stranger that is within thy gates. And here's why. You say, why would God want that to happen? Why would he want the people to hear this word read every seven years? Here's why. He says that they may hear, first of all. Pause for a moment. That they may hear. That the testimonies of God. That the character and nature that is revealed. That the testimony of his word and of his ways would be spoken in a way that it is heard and that then hearing that they may learn that the people might know who i am god says that all of their conjured up ideas that they have come up with creating me in their image making me what they want me to be god would say no they will learn who i am and who i have revealed myself to be they will learn who i am And then he says, and this one might come as a bit of a shock, he says that they may learn and that they may fear the Lord your God and observe to do all the words of this law, that their children, which have not known anything, may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land, whither you go over Jordan to possess it. You say fear. I mean, I thought that, that you know, God isn't supposed to be a fearful God. He, he's not supposed to be a dreadful God. He's supposed to be a loving God. God is love, and perfect love casts out all fear. Why would God want them to fear? Listen, the fear of the Lord is the foundation of all relationship with God. When you go through, you say, well, wait a minute. What about in the New Testament? Yes. Have you read Acts chapter 5 lately? Do you remember the early church, the earliest days of the church? Ananias and Sapphira, they came. They played the hypocrite. They lied to the Holy Ghost. They put on a show as though they were giving all, but in reality they were seeking the praise and plaudits of the people, and they were holding something back. And Peter said, how is it that Satan has filled your heart, Ananias, to to, to withhold? Was it not your own? And while it was yours, couldn't you have done what you wanted? And then it says that Ananias dropped dead right there on the spot. And it says, great fear came upon all them that heard these things. And then Ananias' wife, Sapphira, she comes in. Same story. Peter says, did you sell the land for so much? And and she says, yes, for so much. And Peter says, how is it that you've agreed together to tempt the spirit of the Lord? The feet of them that carried out your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And the Bible says, boom, she dropped to the ground. She dropped dead right there, and they carried her out as well. And then it says the second time, it says, and great fear fell upon all them that heard these things. You say, why did God do that? Here's why, two reasons. Number one is he wanted his early baby church to be pure. It's kind of like when, when you have a baby, when I have a baby. I remember when, when, when I was holding Hosanna, my firstborn, and she was this clean... I mean, her, her spit was cleaner than water. I mean, she was so clean. Not even her diaper stank yet. I mean, she was so clean. And, and I remember holding her, and, and someone in the room used a curse word. And, and I was like, you know... <laughs> I was like don 't you realize what i 'm holding? She was holy, you know she, she was completely clean, and you just defiled her she doesn 't even know it you know, and I was filled with this, like and I really was I was at, now now it happens all the time, and it 's just like okay, well, you know she 's long gone, you know, or something, but when she was a baby, it bothered me, and, and that 's the idea is that god 's church she, she was pure, the work was holy, the work was real, and God took a potential source of defilement, and he put it down right on the, on the spot. And he said, I don't want that in my church. But in the process, he accomplished the second thing, and that is that great fear fell upon the church. And a people that professes the name of God that is void of the fear of God is destined to go off into error. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And it's the foundation of a fruitful relationship with him. I remember the first time I got on a motorcycle. I was so excited to have a motorcycle. And I had no experience riding it. Never ridden a dirt bike, nothing. And I got on a motorcycle and I tried to take it to work. And I didn't know, honest mistake, that you can't turn the handlebars to turn. You can't. I mean, when you're going... 30, 40 miles an hour. If you try to turn the handlebars, they ain't turning. You know, th- you lean. That's how you turn. I didn't know that. So I'm I'm driving down this road. You know, going to work, going from the country to the city. Not around here. This is in Rochester, so it's a little less uh, crazy. You know, but but I, I here comes the curve, and I and I'm st- I'm pulling, and nothing's happening. And and I'm telling you, I went right across the middle line into the other lane into the person's yard, down their ditch, up into their front yard, and came to a stop in the middle of their front yard with my heart beating like this, okay? What did I learn? I learned to fear the motorcycle. (laughs) I realized this thing can kill me. (laughs) This thing is powerful. It's stronger than I am. Now, if that fear had crippled me, then I never would have gotten on a motorcycle again. I would have said, no, that's it. That's dreadful. That's terrible. No, no, no. What happened is that it created a relationship where, where I learned that I have to respect the laws that this motorcycle presents from itself. Otherwise, I will die. And the same thing somewhat holds true as we translate it into our relationship with God. Yes, he loves us unconditionally. Yes, he's committed to us. Yes, he favors us. Yes, he's merciful. He's gracious. But he is to be feared. And when you look at every person in the Bible that knew him, that spoke of him, that was used of him, when they saw him, every one of them, without exception, fell at his feet as dead. Moses said, I exceedingly quake and tremble. John said, I fell at his feet as dead. Daniel, he said, my comeliness, my beauty was turned in me into corruption. Isaiah, who had been so self-confident, said, I am undone. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. And the Lord is to be feared. And you cannot have a fruitful, meaningful relationship with the Lord if it's void of the fear of the Lord. And so it was important to God that that be the foundation, that you understand the weight and severity of who he is and what holiness demands. And that is not just true for the Old Testament saint, but it is true in the New. 86 times the New Testament quotes the book of Deuteronomy. It is the third most quoted book in the New Testament, and it is third only to the two largest books, Isaiah and Psalms. And they don't count, because they're different. They're prophecy, poetry. You know, Deuteronomy was important. It was the most quoted book by Jesus himself. When you go through and you read where Jesus quoted the Old Testament, the majority of his quotes came from the book of Deuteronomy. You remember when Jesus was tempted of Satan. Remember, three times in the wilderness, Satan came to him. And three times, Jesus fought those temptations with Scripture. And all three times, those Scriptures came from Deuteronomy. It was a staple in the devotional life of the Lord. And it was a staple in the teaching of the New Testament church, of the apostles, and of the early Christians. And you get the idea that it was one of the most important books for a Christian to be acquainted with in the early church days. And the same thing is true. And so the book of Deuteronomy is so important. It, it, you know, if, if you had been a Jew in those days and you had a Bible and the Bible had a red letter edition, it would be the words of Moses that would have been in red. You know, a, a, an old, just an Old Testament, not having the New Testament yet. The, the Moses was so important to the people. And so the book of Deuteronomy was a staple. It was important and it is important. So that's why we're doing it, because it's important, and it's impacting, it's profitable. But second of all, and this will be our second reason that we'll take the rest of our time here tonight, the second reason why we are studying the book of Deuteronomy is because the book of Deuteronomy is a bridge. It serves as a bridge between the Torah, that is, the first five books of Moses, and the rest of the Bible. What do I mean by that? Here's what I mean. For the children of Israel, these words, the words that are recorded here, the words that Moses spoke in the book of Deuteronomy, these words served as a transition, listen again, as a transition between their inception as a nation and their destiny as a nation. These words were the transition. Where they were at in their history, in their spiritual life and development, as they came to this point, was the transition between their beginning, their salvation, their redemption, and their destiny. That is the thing that God had for them, the thing that God had made them for. It was a bridge. What do you mean? When Noah got off the ark, You better buckle up now. Get comfortable. You know know you're in trouble. I just went to Noah. (laughs) When Noah got off the ark, the Bible tells us that he had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And all of the world, including you and I sitting here, are linked to those three people, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And when they came off of the ark from the mountains of Ararat, they settled down in the area of modern-day Iraq along the Euphrates River. There's a map that will go up on the screen, and you'll see kind of a map of that region. And if you look at that map, and you look dead center of that map, and then right clear up to the top about a half an inch above what you can see right there is where the ark landed when Noah, you know, on the mountain of Ararat, way up there in the north. And the sons of Noah, they came off of the ark and they settled several hundred miles south of that. If you are, you know, a student of geography and you can find the euphrates river in that map and you take it halfway down through the country of iraq and then a little bit more than that so kind of you know the the southern two-thirds of the the region of iraq there in that mesopotamian delta uh where the euphrates river is that's where they began to settle And it it became the future empire of Babylon, you know, that we read so much about in the Bible, the first powerful empire of the Bible and of of human history, really. And, and, And so they settled there in that time. And, you know, you know the story of the confusion of tongues and the Tower of Babel and the languages were confused and the people dispersed. And the sons of Shem, who was one of the three boys, the three sons of Noah, they moved about 200 miles south of Babylon to the city of Ur. And if you look at the map and you see where Kuwait City is, right there on the north part of the, uh, what is that, that body of water right there. If you see Kuwait City, that's about where Ur was. You are, if you're taking notes. And, And that was where the sons of Shem settled, you know, the Shemites or the Semitic people. That's where they began, you know. And so Shem begins to have kids, and they begin to have kids, and nine generations pass. So Shem's great, 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 great grandson is a young buck, a young fellow by the name of Abram. Abram. Now, interesting, he was nine generations removed from Noah and Shem, but yet he lived at the same time as them. Noah was alive until Abraham was 60. And Shem, who was the son of Noah, he outlived Abraham by 25 years. So that's interesting for you if you you like those kind of things to think through what what kind of dynamics there were in that and what it must have been like and all. but, But now Abraham, nine generations from the flood in Ur of the Chaldees, and God begins again to work and bring forth his plan that he had for humanity and for the nations and god speaks to abraham in ur of the chaldees and god says abraham get thee out of thy country and away from thy kindred and from your father's house and get to a land that i will show you and so abraham being the obedient man that he is he obeys two-thirds of what god says and he gets him out of his country and he gets away from his friends But he takes his kindred with him. He takes his wife and his nephew Lot and his father, and they go north, and they travel up the Euphrates River. And if you see map number two there, you know, that has some white markings on it, you can see the white dot where Ur was, and then you see uh, way up at the top, you see an H with a white dot. You see that there on the map? And that's where Abraham went. He followed the Euphrates River up, and he went up into the region of Haran, H-A-R-A-N. And he stayed there for a little while until his dad died. His dad passes from the scene. And then Abraham fully obeys God, and he moves south into the area which is modern-day Israel, the land of Canaan in his day, the land that God was bringing him to. And when he gets there, God gives him a promise. He says, Abraham, unto you and to your seed I will give this land. And so he gives Abraham a promise and he tells him there that he is going to bless him, that he's going to make a nation from him and that he is giving him that land, the land of Canaan. Well, seven years pass and Abraham still doesn't have a son. And so God reestablishes his covenant, his promise to Abraham. And this time he says, look, tell the stars, count them, number them if you can. If you can count the sand, which is by the seashore, that is going to be the number of your descendants. And then he gives them the promise. He says, I have given you this land from the river of Egypt. And if you put up map number three, from the river of Egypt, which is, you see the white line on the left that has the black X's in it? That's the river of Egypt. All the way to the Euphrates River. That land is the land that I am promising to give to you and to your descendants. And if you look at that big white block there, that's the amount of land that God had promised to give to Abraham and to his descendants. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself slightly, but do you see the red block? That's how much they have. And they never, in the fullness of their history, possessed all of what God had promised them. In the days of Solomon, they had the most. But anyways... That's for, you know, a future study as we uh, get onward with it. But he said, I'm giving you this land. Well, Abraham still didn't have a son. And it wasn't until he was 100 years old that Isaac was born. And Isaac marries Rebekah. And again, she's barren for a season. But then she has twins, Jacob and Esau. And God confirms his promise to Jacob, the son of Isaac, And Jacob leaves the land, and he moves back up into the region where Haran was, way up south, running from his brother Esau. you You can read the story on your own. But while he's up there, he has 12 sons. He marries two women. He marries Leah, and he marries Rachel, the two daughters of Laban. He didn't mean to marry two. It was an accident. <laughs> if you know the story, you understand. He wanted to marry Rachel, but Laban knew. You know what? If I don't trick this guy, I'm never marrying Leah off. You know, she had that kind of uh, temperament and countenance and all. And so he deceives Jacob. He gives her Rachel when it's dark and he can't tell. And then he says, "All right, I'm going to throw Rachel into it's a two for one deal." And, and Jacob ends up with two wives and he ends up with two maidservants, one for each of his wives. And between the four of them, he has twelve kids. Disaster. Dads, don't get any ideas, you know. He would say, don't do it, you know. However, those 12 sons that he had with those, you know, wives of his became the heads of what would become the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, the wife that he favored, Rachel, she was barren. You see a progression here. You see something happening, right? First it's Sarah, then Rebecca, now Rachel. She's barren, but... God visits her and the last two sons that are born to Jacob are the two that come from Rachel. Their names were Joseph and Benjamin. And as Jacob made his way from Haran and came back now into the land of promise where God had established Abraham, Rachel dies. She passes away on the journey. And Joseph and Benjamin became the favored sons of Jacob. And so Joseph was given a coat of many colors. All indications were that he was going to become the one that would be the heir, the the, the prime of, of, of the sons, the one that would be the overseer, the progenitor, the blessing, the double portion would go to him. And so the brothers became jealous. And they sold Joseph as a slave to the Ishmaelite slave traders and he was taken to Egypt as a slave. He comes into Egypt as a slave. He would die there as the prime minister and as the savior of the known world at the time and the one who built the foundation of Egypt's government. God prospers Joseph in Egypt. He brings him to a place of elevation. He's important. He's in politics. And Joseph sends for Jacob and for the family and all 70 of them at this time come down and they live with joseph there in egypt and so now the whole family the whole nation if you would or the seed that would become the nation they're all there in egypt living in prosperity living in comfort in ease living in egypt off the best of the land the fat of the land with joseph as the kingpin in there and then joseph dies And that's where the book of Genesis basically ends. Joseph is buried in a coffin in Egypt and a couple of hundred years pass. And the children of Israel multiply exceedingly there in the land. And several dynasties of Egyptian rulers come and go. And over time, the memory of Joseph and what he had done fades away from the national memory scene. And, Israel is multiplying rapidly and the Pharaoh that is raised up becomes frightened by the power and the influence of the Hebrew people and he begins to put bondage upon them. He begins to afflict them and torment them. And so the people begin to cry out to the Lord. In their distress and in their discomfort, they begin to cry out and say, Lord, save us, help us, send a deliverer. You promised us a land, and here we are. We've become slaves in Egypt, multiplied, but impotent, powerless. And so God heard the cry of his people, and he visited a young couple named Amram and Jochebed, and she became pregnant. The law of the land was, if you have a boy, it's forced abortion. Throw him in the Nile River. And they had enforcement of it. But she had a boy, and he was a beautiful boy, and not fearing the king's commandment, and also not willing to see her son taken from her and murdered, she does the only thing that she can do. She puts him in a little floatable car seat. And she puts him in the Nile River, says a prayer, and puts him into the hand of God. Well, providence would have it that Pharaoh's daughter was bathing just downstream from where he was placed in. And as she's there, she says, bring that over here to me. And inside she hears the sighs, the cries of a baby. She sees the baby. She picks him up out of the bulrushes and she gives him a name. She calls him Moses. She says, because I've drawn him out of the water. And and Moses' sister, who just happened to be following along, watching what would happen with the baby, comes to the woman, to Pharaoh's daughter, and and says to her, hey, do do you need a nurse? And Pharaoh's daughter says, yeah, I'm keeping this one. This is a special baby. But I need a nurse. And so Miriam, the, the sister of Moses, she says, I can help you with that. And she brings the baby right back to his mother. And she nurses Moses and weans him, raises him till that time. No doubt whispers in his ear, the Lord our God is one. He has promised to us, to our seed, speaking to him the things of God. But Moses then was given back to Pharaoh's daughter. He was raised until the age of 40 in the palace there in Egypt. The Bible says that he was trained in all the wisdom and knowledge of the Egyptians and that he was mighty in word and in deed. Some of the history suggests that perhaps he was even himself in line to take over the place and the position of the pharaoh himself. But at the age of 40, he looked in the mirror and he realized something about his life. He saw the size of his nose, the tightness of his financial, you know, operations. And he said, I- I'm not Egyptian. Egyptian. I'm Jewish. And it says that it came into his heart to go and visit the people. And when he saw their affliction, his heart was moved. And when he saw one of the oppressors oppressing one of the people, it says that he slew him and buried him in the sand. And the result of that is that he had to flee for his life. And it tells us that he fled into the land of Midian, which was all the way over in Saudi Arabia. It was a big hike. And as far as he knew, his life was over. He took a job watching sheep for a man named Jethro, married his daughter, whose name was Sipporah, had a couple of kids, and he spent 40 years becoming very familiar with the Arabian wilderness. Learning who, what he wasn't, learning what he was, learning the terrain the layout of that land all things that would prove very useful and very necessary for moses because of the plan that god had for him meanwhile back in egypt the situation was sour souring it was getting worse and the people cried out to the lord and at the age of 80 the lord visited moses and the lord said moses now go back And I will use you to deliver my people. I have seen their bondage. I have heard their cry. And now I will send you unto them, the Lord said. And he sends Moses back into the land. And it takes some convincing, but he wins the approval, the favor of the people. The plagues are brought down upon the kingdom of Pharaoh and upon Egypt. The Passover is instituted and the firstborn of Egypt are wiped out. The concept of the blood is introduced and seen, the power of it to save, to see the death over, pe- death angel pass over. All of that is accomplished and Moses ultimately leads by the power of God the children of Israel miraculously out of the land of Egypt across, well not across, but through the Red Sea, miraculously as the sea was dried up and Pharaoh's army was then buried underneath it as God rescued the people and they were saved, they were delivered from Egypt. They were redeemed, this nation that God had birthed and now he had saved by the power of his right hand. And the people were brought to Mount Sinai, which Paul tells us is in Arabia. Most of your Bible maps got it wrong, you know. And so they're there. They're at Mount Sinai. And God gives to them the law, the Ten Commandments, which would become the foundation for all all government in God's kingdom and all moral law for all of humanity, the Ten Commandments. And then he gives to them the 613 other laws that would constitute their government and what they would be as an entity as a nation as a people and he gives to them the law on sinai and they spend two years there learning the ways of god constructing the tabernacle that is the place of worship the place where god said that he would meet with them he he gives them there all of those things and they spend two years becoming established in this relationship that they have with God. But after two years, God says, now pick up your tent stakes and go north. There's a land of destiny that awaits you. There's a promise that is yet unfilled that I've given to your fathers, a land that I have sworn unto you that you will possess it, a land that flows with milk and honey. And so they move up. It takes 11 days, and they get to Kadesh Barnea, right on the border of the promised land, and God tells the people, he says, now go in and take it. Possess your destiny. Take the the plans that I have for you. Go in. It's yours. Take it. Houses that you didn't build. Vineyards that you didn't plant. Go in. And the people say, "Nah, uh There's giants in the land. We're like grasshoppers. They're going to squash us. God, you don't love us. You hate us. You brought us out here to destroy us. And their heart is grieved. Their souls are discouraged. They're filled with fear. And they don't go in and take the land. And so God then says, Now, because you failed to believe and to take the promises that I've given to you, you will not go into the land because of the evil heart of unbelief that is in you, you will now wander for 38 more years, 40 years in totality, wandering in this wilderness. But Joshua, he'll go in because he believed. Caleb, he'll go in because he believed. And your children under the age of 20, they will go in because they don't know their right hand from their left. They don't, they're going in. But none of you that have refused are going to go in. And they spend 38 years wandering and that's the end of the book of exodus the book of numbers chronicles 38 years of failure on behalf of god's people and faithfulness on the part of god and after 38 years that generation passed away moses had gotten himself disqualified from going into the land. We'll touch upon that when we get into chapter 1 next week. And Joshua, by the way, Joshua, do you know what the Hebrew, I'm sorry, the the Greek name of Joshua is? It's Jesus. It's Yahshua. Joshua. Joshua is raised up, the one, Jesus, who would bring them into the promised land. Moses couldn't do it. The law couldn't do it jesus joshua is raised up he's the one that will bring them in and here they are now 38 years have passed the whole generation has died they're about to go into the land they are about one month away from their destiny of going in to the fullness of what god had made them for the land of promise and it is there that moses then gathers the people And it says, these be the words which Moses spake. And it's the words of Deuteronomy, looking back upon all that God had done, assessing who they are and where they are, and looking forward into what God has for them. And so the book of Deuteronomy is a bridge. It's a bridge between the inception of the nation and the destiny and what awaits them. You say, okay, but what does that have to do with me? What does that have to do with us? Here's what it has to do. Is that everything that happened to them collectively is what happens to you and me personally. Do you understand that? You see, here's the thing. And we're, I know we're late, but we're, we're wrapping up here. here. Here's how it works. Here's it. Ready? Each one of us, we are born. We're born physically we have a a mom and a dad we have a life we we have a a rearing an education and and we're brought up we learn what's right and what's wrong what's right and what's left we learn our colors and our letters and and we grow up and and we kind of get acclimated with this world we're created we're beings but something happens after a while there's a famine. There's a famine in our soul and we're forced to do something about it. There's a void. There's something missing. There's a hunger that's inside. And so we do what everyone does. We go to Egypt. We turn to the world and to the flesh and to the devil. And we fill. We begin to try to fill this void, this emptiness, this famine that's in us. We fill it with whatever we can we fill it with drugs we fill it with booze we fill it with relationships we fill it with food we fill it with enjoyments we try to fill it with money we just it's like the 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 un the bottomless chasm of want you know And, and we just fill it but but that satisfaction that we found temporarily in those things soon becomes bondage We went to Egypt for satisfaction, but over time it turned into bondage. We're slaves to it now. We can't escape from it, and and we find ourselves lost. What are we going to do? And so what do we do? What do wise people do? We cry out to the Lord. All they that call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And we hear the message of God's salvation. We hear the love that's given to us through his son, Jesus, and we respond to it. And the Bible says that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so we call upon the name of Jesus. And we miraculously are lifted out of Egypt. And we're brought through the waters of baptism. The Red Sea of baptism. And we're delivered from the bondage that's in Egypt. And there's rejoicing because there's new life. There's hope. There's something happening. I'm alive. I didn't die there. I'm no longer in chains. I'm no longer in shackles. And so now we're set free from Egypt and we get to know who God is. We become familiar with his word, his testimonies, his ways, his kingdom, his tabernacle, his dwelling place is established with us and in us. We begin to experience his peace and understand and know his love. And, and all of these things become real to us. And we say, yes, Lord, you've saved me. But then we look out and we say, for what? I'm saved. I'm out of Egypt. I'm no longer in bondage, but why? What's the point? I mean, I get the whole heaven thing, but but, but here I am on Mount Sinai or in the Arabian wilderness or here in this life, sitting in a pew or just listening to sermons on the radio or singing songs. But, but, but but what is it Lord? I, I, I read of Moses, how you had a plan for him. You saved him for something. I read of David and how, yeah, there was a a season of waiting, a season of fighting, but then there was a plan, there was a culmination, there was a kingdom that was awaiting him. There was something you saved him for. I read about Esther and Ruth and Abigail, these great women in the Bible, and I see what you did. They fostered and reared kings and changed the course of nations through what they, they, they were able to do as parents. I Consider Paul, the apostle, this man who spent time in the desert, in Arabia. But then, Lord, you used him to turn the world upside down. And then I look at my life and I say, am I really living that kind of life? Or am I just wandering? Or is my Christian experience just a wilderness? And so God takes us, after teaching us, establishing us, grounding us in the things of himself. And he brings us to the border of the promised land. And he takes us to the the top of Mount Pisgah. And he shows us a land that flows with milk and honey. He shows us a land of victory and a land of blessing, a land of spiritual wealth that awaits us, a land of fellowship with him, a land of all that he has provided and all that he's done, things that we can't comprehend, wrap our minds around. And he says, now go in and take it go in, take it, exercise faith and move in the realm of spiritual reality and depth and go in and take it. And we say, ah, you know, if I do that, I'm going to have to give up Saturday Night Live and I'm going to have to spend a little bit more time. And, and I just, I mean, there's battles to fight. I mean, there's giants in the land. And, and what are people going to say? I mean, the church thing is good, but there's a, there's a line there between fanaticism and, you know, righteous. I mean, what, what, I don't know, Lord. And, and here's what happens. Is that many Christians, they're raised up. They're saved. They're delivered. They have fellowship with God. Their salvation is secure. But then they spend years of their life wandering wandering never coming into the fullness of what god has for them the destiny he didn't save you by mistake you're not you don't have an hsn a heaven security number and you're just a number in the chronicles of heaven just someone who happened to be in church that day he saved you with a purpose he knows you better than you know yourself his thoughts are more in number than the sand. He's got a plan. And so the book of Deuteronomy, for them, physically, it was a bridge from where they began to where they were going. But for you and for me, it's the same. It's the preparation. It's what God would have us to know of himself, of ourselves, of life, and of salvation so that we might go in and possess our destiny. And so here's my prayer. We really are closing now. In fact, the worship people can come. Now you know. You can breathe. you ready to go to the bathroom. I'm so sorry. You can stone me later, you know. Here's my prayer as we go through Deuteronomy over these next weeks and months. Hopefully Weeks is that your knowledge of and love for God would grow exceedingly. That he would so establish you in who he is, and even in his fear as you read these testimonies, that your hearts would be elevated and brought closer in devotion to him. My prayer for you is that you would be able to take some time to assess where you've been in your Christian experience. To see clearly where you are. Where am I at, Lord, right now? What is my life and what is it doing? What value is am I in your kingdom now? And that he would show you what he has for you in the days that are yet to come. That God would take you to the Mount of Pisgah, the top of Mount Pisgah, and he would give you a vision for your life and what he has for you. That He would give you a vision for your family, moms and dads a vision for your parenting, that it wouldn't be just getting through and going through parental motions, trying to get them off to college, but that God would give you a vision that you would be the best parents that you can be, that your children would be the next Moses, the next Esther, the next Paul, the next David, that your children would go beyond just being kids in church. That he'd give you a vision in your industry or in your destiny, your dreams, the things that he's called you to. That he'd give you vision for your marriage and for your family. That it would be a light that shines. That he'd give you a vision for your church and for ministry. And that we wouldn't just take up, I mean, what what did we get saved for? Just to sit? Just to hear? Just to learn? Year after year? Wandering through the wilderness? But may God give us a vision. May He fill us with His Spirit. And may He not just teach us about a bridge, but may He move us across it. And may we go from what we were and what we are to what He has for us. Amen? So next week, we'll go through Deuteronomy chapter 1. Let's stand and pray together. Father, we just thank You tonight for the Word of God. We thank You that You laid out the testimonies before us. Thank you, Lord, that you have a plan. Not a cliche, not a cookie-cutter mold of what you've done with someone else. But you have a specific and purposeful design for each one of us. And my prayer tonight is that you would do those things, Lord. That you would give each one of us a fuller revelation and understanding of who you are. That we would see clearly where we've been, where we are, and where we're going. And that you would give us a vision for what it is that you've made us to be. Your word declares that all things were created by you and for your good pleasure. And so, Lord, may our lives be a reflection of that purpose. That we would bring you pleasure. Pleasure. And so we ask you, Lord, to move in our midst. May our hearts be enlarged. And may you make a straight paths for our feet. We thank you so much that you love us enough to tell us and to teach us and to lead us as a Father does his children. May you now fill us with your Spirit. That this year would be a year of elevation, Lord, for us. Personally, for our families, for our congregation. That we would possess all that you've designed for our lives. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name.